Folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is May the 5th, uh, 2020. This is episode 2653 of the Survival Podcast. And I was trying to think of a good subject for today, and I was thinking about various homesteading subjects and things like that, and I realized, like, this was time for a completely new topic, something we've, we've really not ever talked about before. It's an extension of something we've talked about for 12 years, but we've never really talked about it before. I guess we've talked about it in pieces, parts. Uh, we've talked about it with critical situations where, let's say, I had a guy on that talked about the aftermath of a fire. So he was talking about how to deal with the aftermath, but that was really more about preparation. It was like, hey, this is all the shit that happened to us when we had a house fire. This is all the shit if we would have done it, we would have been better off. This is the way that if we would have safeguarded what was left of our home, we wouldn't have been robbed by contractors who were supposed to help us. Um, I'm talking about recovery plans. And we have been so focused on prevention on TSP and the assumption that if you listen to what we teach, you'll be prepared, and therefore recovery is built into the preparedness plan. We've never really broken it out and talked about a recovery plan, and now is the time to talk about it because... I don't think we've had a, a, a time in, in the history of living people in America where we've had something that's affected this many people simultaneously, where literally there is no one that's not affected by this. Now, the degree of effect is, is vastly different. I try to stay cognizant of how blessed Dorothy and I are and my family is. You know, My, my son and my daughter-in-law are considered essential workers. Therefore, they're actually financially ahead right now. They've kept their jobs, they've been paid every week, and they got the government assistance money. Um, there's really no huge hit to them. They're, they weren't, you know, making Rockefeller money prior to this, but their life really hasn't been derailed, but it has been inconvenienced. But even if I look at what they have versus what we have, I, I realize that my life is better than theirs. They can't go out and do things that they usually do. Um, we've been under a stay-at-home order, so visiting uh, family and stuff has been highly, highly restricted. And they live in a nice little three-bedroom house with a nice little backyard. It's nothing like my huge house and my huge backyard. At least the kids have been able to be here for us to watch them during the workday. So they've had access. But we you know, we go out in our backyard and we walk around. And, I mean, you can spend an hour just making one lap around this place and see things you, you haven't seen uh, ever, even if you live here like we do. I mean, there's new things to explore and discover every day. And I think of people that live in small apartments that basically their income is fine, but, you know, they don't even have a place to take a walk. And if they do try to take a walk, they're harassed. And I try to stay cognizant of there's all different levels of sacrifice and disruption that have been made. They're not all financial. They're not all material. Some of them are psychological and logistical as well. Um, I think of people that still have parents and their parents are in a home. And the only thing that kept them really feeling that they were taking care of their parents was weekly or you know, several time a week visits to see their parents that they can't do now. 
I think of when Dorothy had Fred, our my father-in-law, her dad, in a memory care facility, and she was down there at least twice, usually more like three to four times a week. And he didn't remember things, he forgot things, but almost every visit there was at least some moments of clarity where he knew who she was and he knew who he was. Now he thought he built the place he was living, he put the whole back end in, stuff like that, narratives that people create in that scenario, but it didn't matter, her dad was there and she was there for him. And I think what it would be like right now to be told, you can't do that. And so there's all types of ways that people have been hit by this, And let's say that we have the best recovery we possibly could and the best ebb away of the viruses we possibly could. And even if you can go back to things that were far close to normal than people expect, it doesn't mean that those long-term psychological, logistical, financial, etc. consequences just all go away. There's things that have happened. There are people whose marriages have been destroyed over this, I'm sure. I'm sure that would not have been destroyed otherwise. There are people whose marriages were destroyed that were going to fall apart anyway, that was accelerated. There are people who have lost jobs that just wouldn't have happened if this had not happened, and they won't get them back. There are people that will get them back. There are people whose jobs were going to go away, but now they're going away faster. There are people who have gotten through this okay, but still their jobs are at risk long term. There's so many permutations coming out of this. And we need to be cognizant of that, and we need to be real about that. And if we're not, we can't actually develop a plan for recovery. I mean, COVID's not over. The immediate infections are going to continue for a time. And while I think the total lockdowns were absolutely an overreaction, the threat is real, especially for those in high-risk groups. So we still have to contend with that. I don't think there's going to be a second wave in the way that it's meant, which means worse than the first wave. Some sort of return of the virus, whether short-term, long-term, in the fall, winter, is probably inevitable. This is something we're going to deal with. Um, now, we have some level of immunity in our population now that we did not have when this first hit. The, the latest estimates out of New York, 24% of New Yorkers have had coronavirus they're not likely to be reinfected. All the bullshit about there's not really antibodies that stick around and people get it again and all, it's all been now at this point pretty much proven to be bullshit. The people that had coronavirus, here's a very important thing to know. Had coronavirus, cleared coronavirus, tested again positive, but don't get sick. How's that possible? They don't have coronavirus. They have dead virus. The body is killed, still floating around in their immune system, and the tests pick up the dead virus. That, that's what's been discovered. But 24% of, of New Yorkers, based on antibody testing, and this is the Roche-approved antibody test, you know, um, have had coronavirus. That's about 2 million New Yorkers. That means if you get a second wave, if there were no more infections, and there's going to be more infections, but if, if it goes away and comes back, you have around 25% of the population that will not be transmitting the virus, will not be subject to getting the virus. We also now know that of all the people that get the virus, less than 1% is fatal, significantly less, more like 0.1 or lower, right in with a bad flu. The number looks big because so many people got it because it's so contagious, but it's nowhere near as lethal, and we know that. That's it's, But we, the, the problem is, despite the fact that we know all this, that we have all this data, we know what government will do now. We know how government's going to react. We need to be prepping right now for our own personal recovery plans. These plans need to be multidimensional. 
with multiple redundancies. They need to include a plan for what happens if the recovery is very, very fast and sustained. They need plans for what if we have a longer protracted recovery with heavily interrupted recovery. In other words, we go, we start to go again, we get another lockdown. We get spikes, whatever. Or we get other reasons that the economic recovery is more of a W shape than a V shape. Multiple W's. You need to prepare for being a person who gets back to normal fast. And you need to be prepared to be a person that never gets back to the common de definition of normal, even if a lot of other people do. What was your normal may not ever be normal again, even if the country basically looks normal. And then what your normal is may be exactly what you go back to. And do you want to? That's an interesting question a lot of people are probably asking for the first time in their lives. Do I really want to go back to the way things were before all this started? Or have I already found inside myself something that tells me I want to do something different with my life? Not because I have to, but possibly simply because I want to. I want to do something different in my life. There's a lot that we need to prepare for. But I really hope if only one thing has become clear in the mind of the average person through this past two, three months, and that is do not depend on government to take care of your needs. Don't. You have to have your own plan here. Everybody wants to know what the government's plan for recovery is. I'm telling you right now, today, we're going to talk about the plan for recovery you really need to worry about, your personal plan for recovery. Remember, the final tenet in my 12 tenets of modern survivalism is what you do matters. Nothing could be more true than dealing with this right now. That's what we're going to talk about today. Before we do, though, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor day number one today is Western Botanicals. Um, I have always been a fan of herbal remedies especially for chronic things. I, I had Dr. Christopher's uh, tissue and bone as our item of the day yesterday. That that product has done amazing things for me and for other people. And, you know, Western Botanicals doesn't have that particular product, but they have a lot of really great herbal products, and they have really great real people who will pick up the phone and really talk to you and help you make the right decisions and help you with your customer service needs. And those people live in Utah, not New Delhi. Uh, and not to put anybody down or anything, but, you know, I like doing business with with companies in America, that manufacture in America, that employ Americans. And more importantly than that, when I make a phone call, I want the person on the other end of that phone to understand me, and I want to understand them. That's really important to me, that I, when I talk to somebody, that we can clearly communicate with each other. That's what I expect from anybody on the phone anywhere about my product that I've purchased. You'll get that at Western Botanicals, and you'll get the finest herbal products and herbal supplements that you'll find anywhere. If it's legal and herbal, You will find it at westernbotanicals.com. Next up today, bulk ammo. Um, right now, there's a big ammo shortage. But bulk ammo does have some things in stock and is shipping some things. And you want to stay on board, keeping an eye on things there. Whenever there's an ammo shortage, I know that the place that's going to have it back in stock first is bulk ammo. I know the place that's going to charge me the right price is bulk ammo. And I know the place that's going to ship it to me as fast as humanly possible is BulkAmmo.com. Strong sponsor. Been with us like seven years, guys. Check them out today at BulkAmmo.com. With that, let's get into it. I want to start out with a quote, and there's been multiple attributions to this quote, and this is one of those quotes that's so true and so timeless, it's probably been said um, hundreds of different ways throughout history, and I guarantee you, while it has been attributed many times to Benjamin Franklin, The original concept goes back prior to Benjamin Franklin. Uh, there's also no record of it from Franklin. 
in like Poor Richard's Almanac or anything like that. It was reported that he said it, but there's no solid attribution. Sounds like something Franklin would say. But somebody who we know said a version of it at a critical time in history, regardless of where it began, was Winston, Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill did say this. Doesn't mean he originated, but he did say this. And the way he put it when he said it was, he who fails to plan is planning to fail. So I, I selected that for our um, quote of the day today because that's how I feel about having a personal recovery plan. No matter how well you've done, I suggest that you, do, you listen today and develop a personal recovery plan with multiple redundancies in it. And that you realize something about human beings that is incredibly important. It's one of the biggest things we waste in our existence is the, one of our many unique traits of all life forms we know of. Now, I am a person who, who believes in science, and I believe in numbers and probability. And I believe when there's billions upon billions of galaxies, not billions upon billions of stars, billions upon billions of galaxies with billions upon billions of stars in each galaxy, the, the concept that we are the highest form of life in the universe is pretty much a long shot. And somewhere else there are other beings of some sort that can do the things we do and maybe even more. But the life that we know of is all on this planet. And we are the only species that we know of that can actually plan. That can actually plan. Even when we look at nature's example of preparedness, like the ant or a bee or something like that, it's hardwired into them to behave a certain way. They don't really have a redundancy. Bees make honey for the winter with the assumption there'll be enough honey for the winter that's coming. Bees don't really have a plan B. Funny, huh? Bees don't have a plan B. They don't. Squirrels bury nuts, but they don't really have a plan B. They just have intrinsic behaviors that are part of their adaptation. The only species, the only life form we know of, that can literally sit down and, and do the basic logical exercise of if this, then that is the human being. With there being more thises than one. If this, then that. If this other thing, then that other thing. If this other thing, then that other thing. We're the only ones that can do it. And the fact that we fail to plan, we fail to use that unique attribute so frequently, because we think somebody else will do it for us, is really planning to fail. So think about that as we go through today. I'm going to try to go kind of quick, even though I have a lot to cover. I am not going to tell you what to do today. It is not my intention to tell you what to do today. It is to give you a lot of scenarios so you can figure out what you need to do. Because as I started out, I try to stay cognizant of the fact that in some ways I'm far more blessed than a lot of people in the country today. The fact that you know our home, if, if we had no income, we could pay for our home for two years without blinking. And if you told me I can't leave my home for the next 60 days, I wouldn't even be sweating it. I wouldn't, even if I couldn't order food. And I have plenty of entertainment and projects and things to do here. And I could come out of that other 60 days with new things and new ways to make money. And I think anybody can figure out how to do some of those things, but it's easier for me. And I also realize that there's people out there that, that have far more than I do. Far, far more. And it's easy for them to tell you we're all in this together. They're full of shit. You know, 
a celebrity that tells me we're all in this together while they're they're sitting in their kitchen, and their kitchen they have more money in their kitchen than everything I own, and everything you know, ten people at random that listen to my show have all put together, and they have more money than that in their kitchen. They're standing in front of a fifty thousand dollar range set and a twenty five thousand dollar refrigerator. And we've just gotten started. We haven't even talked about countertops yet. And they tell us we're all in this together. No, no, we're not. No, we're not. And the resources they have are far more extensive than the resources that I have. But the resources that I have are far more extensive than the resources that many of of other of you others out there in this audience have. And I don't say that to brag. I say that to be honest. To put in, put put in perspective that. Each of us has a certain amount of capability and resources and knowledge and skill at our disposal and money. And then we have to make it work with what we have. And if the government does something that actually benefits you, great. But don't bet on it happening twice and make the most use of it. So what I want to give you today are scenarios for the virus, scenarios for the economy, and then things that you need to ask yourself so you can write your own plan. So let's start out with three scenarios everyone seems to see as possible for the virus itself. This is what you're hearing on the television and on the radio and on social media. Number one is a total ebbing of the virus. No significant bounce back immediately or in the fall or winter. Like, it kind of hangs on, but basically it just dabs and ebbs and eventually it kind of goes away and it's no longer a problem at all. That's the least likely scenario. Of course, it doesn't keep you paying attention to Fox News or MSNBC or, or CNN or any of the other news outlets. So it's not something that maybe they talk about a lot. I hear this one a lot more in social media from people that I think want to believe it. And I'm not saying it's not possible. I'm just saying that most people that think it's the most probable scenario want to believe it. Um, I think there's potential for it. And I think that, honestly, the places hit the hardest, will, if, if this is the, what's going to happen, will have it happen the fastest. New York City, with almost, you know, and they say 24%, I would say, you know, every day add, a, add at least 1% to that. So if it was 24% this weekend, it's probably 27% now of New York has had or has the coronavirus. They're going to actually, as bad as it is there, and as bad as it might last longer as it ebbs out, the more resilient that population is if you end up with 50% of New York having had coronavirus by the time this is over with, and I mean New York City and, and surrounding boroughs, um, then it's very difficult for it to rampage again. Where a state like Texas, we're getting off pretty easily, um, right now having about um, 33,000 cases reported. So I'm going to tell you that that's more like 660,000 cases in the state. Because it's about 20x is what we figured out. And that's a very good estimate of the number. Um, but we have a state with, like think, I think, 29 million people. So if you get a, a bounce back, it may hit harder in places that have not been hit as hard. Just because there's more people there subject. Their mitigation is, is how spread out they are and what, whatever made them less, less hit in the first place. I do think one of the things we need to understand, and we need to be very clear about the death rate, primarily exists due to failure to protect the most vulnerable while telling healthy people to stay home. You didn't protect grandma in the old folks' home 
when Grandma 2 went to the hospital, had symptoms of COVID, wasn't tested and sent back to the old folks' home, and 25 people in the old folks' home died. Me staying home did not prevent that from happening. And, it's, and, and me not staying home did not cause that to happen. And this is why the death rate in New York is so high, because it's exactly what New York did. And as good as Sweden's having it, the reason their death rate looks bad, it was the mistake they made. They didn't close the elder care facilities. That was And the, and the, the, the epidemiologists in Sweden that are running the program that say we think we're doing the right thing, they have said that was our mistake. We should have done, that was the one thing we didn't do we should have done, and our death rate would look better. So there is potential for this kind of just a bluff, but don't bet on it. And don't bet on any scenario I'm going to give you today. Next is an immediate spike in cases, hospitalizations and death upon reopening. Now, understand what immediate is. Immediate is 14 to 30 days after we begin the reopening because that's how long it takes to see the results. When you see these retards, and I know some people don't like when I use that word, but it is a perfectly good word to describe the intellectual behavior of these people. When you hear these retards going, when they opened up the state and in three days we had the highest death rate ever, there is no correlation. There is no correlation there. There is a, an average five-day incubation period between the time a person gets infected that they even show a symptom. And then there's an average duration of five to ten days before that person, if they're going to need hospitalization, ends up in the hospital. It's usually about ten days. And then it's anywhere between, some people do die really fast. It hits them, it hits them hard, and they're taken out. In general, the average time from the date of infection to a death is somewhere between 21 and 30 days. So if everybody that went out to the beach got coronavirus that day, you wouldn't see a blip in the numbers that have a correlation to that. doesn't mean there couldn't be an uptick in numbers, but have a correlation to that activity for at least 5 to 10 days. And you wouldn't see a big uptick in death for 20. So when I say immediate, I mean you know within a month. And the problem with the hospitalization and death rate going up a month after we begin to open things, isn't it happening in of itself? It could be moderate to mild uptick. The problem is the government immediately overreacting, all the governors acting like Governor Meemaw up in Michigan, telling you you can't go to Walmart for a garden hose, and double crashing the economy. And then everybody panicking in a huge way. That's another scenario you're hearing. And then... You are hearing the third scenario, which seems to be the one that most of the experts are most concerned about. And that is a true ebbing of the virus, not much of a rebound in the summer due to opening, but then a big rebound in the next flu viral season of the late fall into winter. And those are the three that they're talking about. And that has its own issues because now we know what government will do. And if it starts to uptick in the fall, especially around the election, it's going to get politicized even more than it has, and governors are going to go insane. And they might have lockdowns that are way worse than the lockdowns we just went through. And that, again, double crashes the economy. Um, and that might have far more long-term serious consequences to the macro economy. Here's what I find most likely. Now, again, don't bet on any of this, because you have to have a plan for all of this. I think the virus will almost disappear in some areas of the United States in the next four weeks. Like, just gone. And in other areas, it will be a problem and continue to be a problem. The more dense the population 
the more indoor activities, uh, the more, and I know some people are going to try to make this racist or something. It's not. It's just the reality of living conditions. The more urban poverty you have and the more immigrant worker, and I mean a specific type of immigrant worker. I don't just mean somebody that came from another country. I mean... And again, you can try to make this something it's not. It's just facts on the ground. In Texas, we have a lot of Hispanic immigrant workers, as you might imagine. And they're good people. And I don't have a problem with the people. But let me tell you how they live. They pile 9, 10, 12 people into a single wide trailer. And they put 20 trailers together in a compound. Or they put all their money together and they get a rental house in the suburbs, a four-bedroom rental house, and they put 20 people in there. And then they have weekend parties like you've never... I mean, there are places I can take you in Texas. And I'm not putting them down. I'm just telling you this is what happens. There's places in Grand Prairie, Texas that I can take you that if you drive through there on a weekend, it it, it looks like Cinco de Mayo in a major urban area that celebrates the hell out of it and promotes the hell out of it every weekend. I can take you to state parks where there are is every single place that there's a place for a day for, day for a car to sit, there's a car. There's blaring Tejano music. And an average of eight people showed up in that one vehicle. And all the cars are blaring different Tejano music. There's cookouts everywhere. And it looks like a mass gathering at some kind of major event. And it's just an average weekend. I'm not criticizing that. But if you take that... And you take workers that go to different job sites every day or are exposed to, to hundreds of different people every day that, that carpool to the point where you have guys like in the back of the truck, inside the truck, arms hanging out. Your propensity to spread a virus is higher. And guess where that is? That's my backyard. So it could be that Texas has a huge drop in uh, numbers as a state. But where I live, Dallas side of the Metroplex, Houston... San Antonio, Beaumont, etc., where all this immigrant labor is, continues to have problems. And we just don't know. But that is the sporadic clusters is what I see. Sporadic clusters, and the problem I see with that is it leads to incompetent, excessive government reactions. The smart government reactions, if there is such a thing, that are still maybe overreactions, will be very specific to an area. If there's a cluster here, we're going to put this area in some sort of lockdown or control. We're not going to put the whole state. And if there's a problem in this state, we're not going to put the whole country in a lockdown. That is is the lunacy that created this problem in the first place. The problem is government may completely overreact and not follow that pattern. Uh, I also think while some bounce back will occur, it will be mitigated. That doesn't mean the government will overreact it, but it will be mitigated by new treatments and significant immunity in the population. I mean, what you have to really get is if you are a person that kind of does the same thing every day in your routine, you might interact with a few people here and there that you don't normally see, but sooner or later you've pretty much reacted, interacted with all the people you're going to react with. And that is part of how we flatten a curve through social distancing. But sooner or later, you either get infected or you don't, and you don't really have a lot of exposure to other people. Now, those people have exposure, and there's a lot of variables in there. But if you take something that had a 0% immunity, 
and it now has a 20% immunity in the population, you're going to have a lot less spread. Now, we could have you know, mutations. Um, maybe. Maybe. But right now, it doesn't look like those mutations allow for reinfection. The mutations have primarily changed either the contagion of the virus to the positive or to the negative. That, that is, every place they found a, a, a mutation, the virus is still basically the same virus. It still basically produces the same antibodies. A person that's had one variant pretty much looks like they're immune to the other variant. What's changed is the ability of the virus to spread. That's the main mutation. It's like it has the same spike proteins, etc. And this is actually probably a direct consequence of, of all the social distancing and all the lockdowns. The virus has mutated not to become more lethal, which coronaviruses tend not to become more lethal. If anything, they become less lethal because that makes them survive longer and makes them propagate more. But they do tend to try to mutate to become more contagious. And it doesn't try to do it. It does as a natural byproduct. As mutations occur, the ones that tend to propagate themselves are the ones that have already mutated by just random chance to being more contagious and less lethal at the same time. But right now, it seems that most of the, the mutations have not become less lethal. They still hit certain people in, in, in very hard ways, and, and most people in no way at all. So we have that on top of the sporadic clusters. And I do think that government is still going to ov overly react. And this is my most likely pick. A general downturn in the virus, sporadic clusters and an overreactionary nanny state government. But I'm preparing for every one of those six I just gave you. Economic recovery scenarios. Here's what people are talking about. Um, a new Great Depression. And I say that is only if we continue the lunacy lockdowns. Now, if you keep the majority of the country locked down through the summer, you have a second Great Depression in your lap, and it will be very difficult to recover from. I don't think that's going to happen. I think that a lot of state governors are pushing the envelope a little bit with the reopening because they're actually starting to involve examine the fiscal consequences. And they're realizing that unlike the federal government, they do not have a printing press, and any handout they get from the federal government is going to be limited in what it can do for them. And I think states like, that already had huge fiscal problems, New York, Illinois, Connecticut, etc., at all, um, they see this as an opportunity to get a bunch of money from the federal government to solve problems that COVID created, but also to solve problems that already existed. And I don't think that money is coming. And eventually, even those states who have been the most onerous with lockdowns are going to have to face the reality, either get your economy going or you are going to go bankrupt as a state. The federal government cannot bail out 50 states. And it is not reasonable to ask people in Texas to bail out New York. Not at this level, and not for problems they already had. And I don't think the political will exists to do that. So if you continue this, you get a Great Depression. But if you don't continue this, it's like I've said before. It's like the Marauds fallacy. It's not like if they open things back up, everybody's just going to sit around and go, well, you know, it was a good run, but I don't do anything now except stay in my home. People will go back to work. People, All the problems that they point out, what will parents do with their children? I don't know. They'll figure it out. 
We'll talk about some ways that might get figured out here and some real changes in the way America even works. But we'll figure it out. Basically, what I hear the cries of, what would I do without the public education system, which really is daycare, like Jack said all along. Minimum security prison daycare for my kids. What will I do without that if I have to go back to work? They're your kids. You'll figure it out. So we don't get a Great Depression unless we get extended continued lunacy, which I don't think we get because I think that the people behind it know there's a limit to how long they can play that card. Um, and those of you that think they want a Great Depression, you are out of your effing mind. I cannot help you. I'm not going to bother. Because that's not good for people in power to have a Great Depression. Dependency? Sure. 100% dependency? No. They don't want that. Um, then other people think we're going to have a rapid, sharp economic recovery. We call it a V-shaped recovery. Um, I think that that is very possible with some corrections and, 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 and sustained overall V-shape at the macro level for Wall Street. And I'll say more on that when I get to my most likely scenarios of what's going to happen. Um, so I think you can have something that looks very V-shaped as far as what the stock market says. But I, I don't think you're going to get that for Main Street. Uh, but people have this belief that, hey, you know, if we just take off all the all the, 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 the uh, shackles, everything will come back. And I think it will come back. But I think the next scenario that people are talking about, and I am hearing, you know, so-called economic experts discuss this type of a recovery, I think is more likely a long, slow, protracted recovery that's multi-W shaped. Up and down and up and down and a hiccup here and then there and on and on and on. But you actually get, if we look at it over, let's say, the next 24 months, a slow recovery. Everything continues to get better and better and better. You might even see something that looks like a V at first, but then it plateaus long before it gets back to where it was. And then the rest of that recovery is pretty anemic. But as long as we're moving in the right direction... And as long as confidence continues to grow, people will adapt to the new normal, whatever the hell that means, and we will have an eventual recovery. What others are saying is it's going to be more like a long recession, something akin to the 0809 recession, but it's going to take a lot longer to totally unwind. I think that's possible, but I don't see it as the most probable. So here's what I think we face economically going forward. Number one, major hiccups in the food supply chain but not the tr not true food shortages in the U.S. And what I mean is you may go to the grocery store one day and not be able to get chicken. That That's, I, especially with people panic buying and all, I am happy to see like the grocery stores seem to have learned from this and where they see weaknesses in their supply chain, they're saying, okay, as a customer, you can buy three meat items today. And I think that will help with this doesn't make it go away, but what prevents is some guy going in there and filling up his grocery cart, overfilling, and chaining two of them together of all the meat that's in the store. Because the, And then the problem, this is the same thing that happened with the toilet paper, guys. If you don't have quantity limits put in by the, the retailers, as soon as one person sees one person doing that, you get monkey see, monkey do. And even people that don't do it as bad, they still throw one or two extra items. Now, you propagate that across... You know, 10,000 people hitting that grocery store in a month, and you get an exasperated problem. So I think we'll see supply chain disruptions, but to me, a food shortage means people legitimately are going hungry, not because they don't have money, 
but because food is inaccessible for a sustained period of time and there's nothing to eat. So I think you may not be able to get your pick and choice of some things at some point. Uh, it's one reason we're going to start doing some more pastured poultry here um, until we get through this thing. But I really think that you're going to see these hiccups. And then you're going to see a rapid increase in economic flux. And what I mean by that is a lot of the shit that was already happening is going to happen faster and more brutally now. Here's the things I see coming. Number one, education will continue to move more online. We'll have more homeschooling, more distance learning, more people opting out of the conventional university scenario. Um, more kids going, well, if I can go to college online and pay lots of money, why don't I just go to college online and pay a little bit of money? You're going to see a lot of, um, I think, young people starting to evaluate what type of degree, if any, they need, or are they better off taking more of trade-based education? Uh, and and I, that all was happening. But I think now that all happens more quickly. And the education market in America is hundreds of billions of dollars, and it supports hundreds of thousands of, of, of small micro-businesses that exist in its supply chain and in and around university communities and, and things like that. I mean, I want you to think back in the, in the 80s and the 70s, and even into the 90s, the United States military took a look at a lot of its, in, uh, its military bases and said, do we really need this many bases in America anymore? And the answer was no. And think of towns where a military base closed, or even downsized. What happened to that town? In many ways, major universities are more important to towns than those military bases were. And we have towns where there's, you know, they're pretty small towns other than the college uh, component to it, and they have five, six major universities in and around that town. Close one or two. Downsize one or two. And as a huge ripple effect and that was already coming that hand has been way overplayed the value of a degree is now half of what you pay for it in my opinion because of artificial inflation of the price by government guaranteed loans the, 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 the current market where see just think about basic economics 101 because I think economic illiteracy is the biggest danger we have in America today and we're not teaching eco 101 to people at all. We, we have people with economics degrees that even know what I'm about to say is true but can't put it all together as to what it means when we do this to education. So the less I have of something that's in demand, the higher the unit cost is. So if I have 100000 of a new model of television and 150,000 people want that television really badly, I can charge within reason, anything I want for that television, sell all of them. If I have 100,000 of this new type of television and 50,000 people want it, I can sell it for a high dollar amount for a time. But as soon as I run out of that market, 50,000 people want it. Now, how many people in that 50,000 have the money? All right? So maybe... 30,000 of the people in that 50,000 have the money. So at first, it's a free-for-all. People are fighting for it because it's limited quantities. And the day I sell the 30,000 first television, 
price is going to get cut in half. Or more. I've now got to compete with the other TVs that aren't as awesome. This is what's happened to college degrees. Not that long ago, about 40% of people went to college. Today, over 70% of high school graduates go to college. Yay! No. Because now I have twice as many people to pick from with a degree. And I have more than that because the population's grown. And the jobs that require, that really require a degree, not that say they require a degree, actually require a degree, there's really not that many more of them per capita than there used to be. So your value to me with that degree is less. See how that works? I mean, it's just basic economics. I'm not buying one of 50,000 TVs and competing with 50,000 other people or 100,000 other people that want one. Now I'm buying one of 200,000 TVs and I'm competing with 40,000 people that want one. TV price is going to go down. Well, there's a limit to how much of that kind of thing happens in the free market because I have to put a lot of money in. If I'm the maker of the TV, I have to put a lot of money into research and development, manufacturing, importation costs, employing people to make those TVs. I have to be pretty sure of the market for that TV before I go into production. See? But if I'm a college and I want to add a new degree program and I've had the entire country lying to young people about the value of an education and that young person can sign a piece of paper and get money that they don't have to pay back for a year or two after they're out of my university, I don't have to think at all. All I have to do is figure out how big I want that wing to be that I'm going to put that new program into. Well, that's... That, you can only play that game so long, and it was already unwinding. Now it's going to unwind a lot faster. More families are going to move to a one-stable income family. And what I mean by that is mom or dad will have a job that is a typical job. I work for this company. They pay benefits. I make this much money an hour or this much money a year, project bonuses, whatever, your conventional employment. You're going to see more families move to one spouse doing that. The other spouse is going to end up doing things that are side hustle, home-based entrepreneurship, home-based enterprises, um, all types of different flexible things that can be done to earn some income. Because a lot of people are going to do the math and say, because this has already been true and it's becoming more true, the cost of childcare is such that if I don't have in-laws that take care of my kids... You could probably cut your income in half and come out ahead, emotionally, spiritually, and financially, and feel like you're doing more for your kids. And, and, and so many people are now being exposed to that reality. I keep hearing about how, how it, oh my God, teachers are heroes. Look at these amazing teachers. What, how hard it is to teach one kid kindergarten stuff. Bullshit. You know what? If you can't teach a kid how to read, you're stupid and you don't know how to read. You do not need a master's degree to teach a kid to read C-Spot Run. I'm sorry. And, and, and families are waking up to this. You can put all the pretty spokesmodel-looking fake teachers you want on the news and interview them about how important they are, how self-important they are, and how parents are calling them and telling them how great they are and how much they... No. You're still a huge portion of people going, Well, this ain't so bad. Johnny's home. Johnny does his work. Johnny's done with his work at 11.30 in the morning. What the hell is Johnny doing at school at 3.30? I wonder how... And, and see, this is something I've been trying to teach for so long. The day you ask a question, 
your mind begins to solve for X, which is the answer to that question. And it's X, X times infinity. There's an infinite number of answers to that question. So you start getting people that simply ask the question, how can this continue? How can I continue to let my kids have this level of freedom? Especially when it's once again okay for them to go play with their friends. How can I work with other parents who I've been talking to on Skype or whatever, or over the fence, or having meetings with them because I don't give a shit what the government says, to where we can work together to make this work? You know, I can see a group of three families getting together and saying, well, look, if each one of us had one partner with part-time work and we staggered the part-time work so that different days or different times or different places the kids could be looked after and go to a different house, then we can make this work. You know, Even if our income on one half is cut in half, so we're down by 25%, if we eliminate childcare costs... And we can give a better experience to our children. And packs like that. Basically, co-ops that are unofficial co-ops being made. And, and a hundred, and that's just one solution. Again, I don't want to give you the ideas today. I want to give you concepts. So you can come up with your own ideas. That's just one. When, you see, the minute, the minute people ask, how can I? That self-learning computer kicks in and starts coming up with probabilities and possibilities. Well, people who never asked that question before are asking that question. How can we make this work? And they're getting time to think about it and experience with it. And again, I think what people don't understand is what a disruption 10% of a market not being there is. Let's say we're going to have food shortages, but not, not what we would call true food shortages. 10% shortage. There's enough for everybody to still eat, but boy... But boy, there's a problem at the same time. And, and I think that's that's something that we're going to, again, we're going to see more and more of that. Next, I, you know, John Pugliano and I have been talking about this for a couple of years now. John even wrote a book about it called The Robots Are Coming, and that's the automation uptick. And jobs being automated out of existence. I think that you're going to see that automation curve coming faster than ever. And I'm going to tell you when it's really going to kick in. It's going to kick in really heavily right after the deal that was just made for loans expires. So a lot of companies that are supposedly small businesses that are actually, you know, $10 million, $20 million, $30 million companies, many in manufacturing, um, just got free money as long as they don't get rid of their employees till like the end of the year. Well, once that deal expires, they can get rid of their employees. And many of them were already heading toward automation. I was watching today, they had video inside one of the plants. I don't remember who it is. I want to say 3M, but it wasn't 3M. It was somebody like that making N95 masks, saying that they were going to be making 20 million masks a month out of this one plant. And so I'm watching these assembly lines, and I'm watching these workers stand there, watching masks get made by automation, basically, not really doing very much. And I'm watching as they're making 20 million N95 masks with actually can help prevent you from getting coronavirus. And all of the employees making the N95 masks are standing there wearing basic surgical masks. Not doing anything that you could not have a machine do. And I'm going, this plant is going to be automated because if I automate my plant, 
I don't have employees that I have to worry about getting sick. And if this comes back, I'm bulletproof. And the less employees I have, the more I can keep employees on staff. And the more, you know, if I, if I can reduce my headcount to 10% of what it was running under automation, but I really could reduce my headcount to 5%, it's worth to keep the 10% online. I can give them fake work, dummy work, whatever. And then if something happens, I do have enough personnel. I can lose half my workforce and my plant still runs like, keeps going. If you look at what I talked about earlier with migrant communities and the spread of disease, how much more automation do you think is going to come into agriculture? Who's going to pick the lettuce? The robots are going to pick the lettuce. It's not that we don't have robots that can't pick lettuce already. It's the capital investment in it is massive. And an existing system already is there. But these big conglomerates are already moving in that direction. These are just little pushes. Well, how many little pushes do you get before you knock the guy off the ledge? Some jobs that have been eliminated are never coming back. This happened in 2008-2009. We got a whole new type of economy coming around now that was doing pretty well. But a lot of jobs never came back because what happens is, as a company, I lean out when I have to in hard times. And I realize, okay, well, I leaned out, you know, so I'm a big company, I leaned out 200 positions. And, man, I need to hire, now that things are picking back up, like 25 of those positions back. But since I leaned out the ones I knew I could most do without, boy, those 75 people didn't do that much. What they did really wasn't that important. So between automation and just flat reality that once you get a company of a certain size, a lot of people there don't need to be there. We're going to have a complete shift in employment that was already coming sped up. Um, there will be massive buyouts of failed businesses. There will be restaurants who have successfully gotten through this that will go, kind of like to have a location there with a commercial kitchen that's already FDA approved. And go in and buy that failed little restaurant for a song and expand their operations. And it's not just restaurants. That's just an easy one to point out. You're going to see a lot of, if there is an opportunity in that sector, in the rebound, the people that couldn't survive the cancer treatment of COVID's lockdown, somebody else picking that up. Some of it, those buildings will stay shut. There'll never be anything there again. Some of it, they'll be picked up and turned into something else because it's an asset. But I think you'll see a lot of businesses that closed just be reopened under new branding, new ownership. Um, you're going to see a massive increase in the credit market. I know you think you have. You haven't seen anything yet. As the economy begins to recover, there's going to be a lot of justification for more lending, better lending terms, things like that. Um, the need for these businesses to be bought that I just talked about is going to be one justification. The other justification is going to be we, you know, small businesses ready to come back, but they need the fuel. So they'll get these loans right now that are from the federal government that are for survival. But then we're going to hear they need expansion, they need to adapt, et cetera. They need bridge loans, et cetera. And all types of programs will be rolled out and incentivized. And instead of guaranteeing the loan or loaning it where it becomes a grant, what you'll have is back-end deals made by the Fed, extend this credit, we'll cover the losses on the back-end through some sort of shenanigans. And that eventually will end badly. That will eventually end badly. I think you will see a fairly rapid 
Wall Street recovery. The, 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 all of these things that I'm talking about that seem really bad are pretty good for corporate entities. You, 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 we've just seen that even if you lock people in their homes, as long as there's a way to get shit to them, as long as they have money, they'll buy it. They'll buy it, you'll ship it to them, and you can be incredibly efficient and profitable in doing that. Um, the, 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 the wealth of Jeff Bezos has gone up astronomically as though it wasn't already huge. And I don't say that in any kind of class warfare thing. Because if you want to, Jeff, if Jeff Bezos actually wants the money that he's supposedly worth, the only way he can get it is to sell common stock from Amazon. And if he sold 10% of his stock, you'd crash the price for everybody that was holding it, including your grandmother inside her ETFs, inside her retirement. Um, it's just true. It just is the case that like, there's been massive increasing in wealth during this biggest recession in history, biggest depression in history. I hesitate to call it a depression, not because of the depth, but because of duration. A, a depression is something that's, that's very long-lasting and very hard to come out of. Um, and I don't see that here. I see this long kind of protracted W recovery uh, thing going on. Uh, far more uh, than what I think a lot of people are expecting, more difficulty, but yet it being a sustained uptick. But I see once it becomes evident that that is indeed the case, that Wall Street takes off on speculation like it always does. So your 401k will probably do better for many people than their individual lives will. So I've heard John Pugliano say often that just necessarily what's good for Wall Street isn't necessarily good for Main Street, or what's bad for Main Street isn't necessarily bad for Wall Street. As long as enough people on Main Street are doing good enough to buy the stuff, you can have a, lot, a big segment of Main Street hurting, If the majority of Main Street are doing okay, Wall Street can do very well. And I think we're setting up to see quite a bit of that as the flux plays out and people figure out, how do I adapt to this? Um, I also think, and I think people don't get how, how much this is going to be the case, a much faster shift to solar and other alternative energy technologies. And there's something going on here that people just don't understand. The biggest innovations in solar energy are not being made by eco-hippies that want to save polar bears. They're being made by companies like ExxonMobil. I know you don't believe that. I know the TV insists that, they're, that they are the enemy of the polar bear and all that is good and holy on the planet and that they are, the, the Exxon is literally shipping nuclear-powered ships with giant hair dryers on them up to the North Pole and down to the South Pole and physically melting the ice caps to get the job done faster. I know that's what they're telling you. These companies believe in making money, and they believe in long-term economic planning because they know that if you don't plan, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. They know that. And they know the future in, is in energy is in solar. They know that the days of oil and gas are numbered. They know this. And oil and gas have a weakness, because everybody talks about their strength, but the weakness we've seen right now, the oil and gas must be pumped out of the ground, it must be moved, it must be refined, and there's a huge process necessary to make all that work. And a disruption in that process causes catastrophic things everywhere. If you have a giant solar farm and a bunch of batteries, and you're making more energy than you need right now, 
you just don't store it until you need it again. And I, I know there's problems with that model. I'm not short-selling the problems, but those problems are directly related to scale. If you scale large enough, you overcome those problems. And everything that's being made lasts longer, works better, and costs less in that sector today. The energy companies have been kicked in the dick by this. The countries that base their economy largely on oil and gas have been kicked in the dick three times sideways till their dick's up their rear end. Okay? Like Russia. Russia is reeling on this. So if you think about Russia, it still is largely a socialist planned economy. What do you think their thought process is right now as, as a socialist nation? Then turn over to ExxonMobil kicked in the dick, right? Chevron, etc., right? British Petroleum, all kicked in the dick hard. You know, let's be honest, kicked in a dick in the ball simultaneously. Don't you think that they, since they already are working on all these alternative technologies, that this is like, well, you know, if we had already been there. And this is a fundamental reality that some people, for some reason, do not want to accept. And I, I don't know why that is. Because, you know me, I am a huge climate change skeptic. This has nothing to do with climate change. This has nothing to do with little Greta. This has nothing to do with Al Gore's inconvenient truth and lockbox. It has nothing to do with any of that. This is just to do with technology and economics. By 2025, it seems apparent that the cheapest form of energy that we have will be solar with storage. Now, it won't be cheapest on initial cost, but over a 10-year lifetime of a system that you're installing today, it will be the cheapest energy you can buy. And at that point, you do solar for completely selfish reasons. Completely selfish reasons. And while there are environmental issues with rare earth elements, etc., for this market to work, they are minuscule compared to coal mines. And the majority of our energy in the form of electricity that is produced in the world today comes from coal. Coal is the dirtiest, nastiest, and most liability-laden form of energy that we have. It's cheap, but it is dirty, nasty, and full of liability. And that liability will only increase while the cost of solar and associated liability decrease. You also have to build a power plant when you build it for coal-fired or any other type of fuel-fired plant. You have to build it as what you call a peaker. And what that means is we have to have a huge excess in the capacity of production relative to the average use. So that when peak moments happen, we can, we, can, we can cover them. We actually call these plants peakers. We actually called that peakers. And several years ago, the major electric companies said due to the cost of storage going down, the batteries alone, and the capability alone. We will never build another peaker again. We will build storage capacity instead of production capacity because it costs less and works better. And if we build more storage capacity than we need, we can still draw off all of it. We just take it down less, and that extends the life of the storage. Right? 
Then we add, and once you have the storage, the cost of the solar generation is infinitesimally cheap. And all it does is get cheaper and cheaper. We move faster in that direction with this. Now, does that mean everything's super? Actually, that means everything is going to be this mix of super and spectacular at the same time, which means you need to know what the hell you're going to do. So here's the things you need to ask yourself as we wrap up here so you can write your own plan. Number one, how far did this set me back and in what ways? How far back did you get set financially, psychologically, project-wise, progress-wise? What were you working on in your life that got derailed by this? Now, was it real or is it imagined? doesn't matter because you still aren't where you're, you're supposed to be. So you got to get a – and I mean I think you should sit down – I think if you, you you don't need to write it down now, go get the show notes for today. Again, episode uh, 25, 2653. And you, I have all of these questions. Write these questions down with big spaces. Maybe get a spiral notebook and write one question down per page. And then start answering that question with as many answers as you can come up with. Even if you think they're wrong. Brainstorm type answers here. If it comes into your head, write it down. It might not even have anything directly to do with the question. But it's, there's a reason it came to your mind. That self-learning computer is kicking on. So how far did this set me back and in what ways? That's question number one. Question number two, how fast can I get out of any and all consumer debt? If you have consumer debt, there's been never a time in history more important to get the F out of it than right now. Right now. And I mean starting now, not when COVID goes away. The, the, the whole I need you to get something out of your head right now. When this all gets better, when this all goes away, when things pick up, and any variant of that, shit can that right now. Assume that it doesn't get any better than this for a year. I think it does, but I don't care. You need to plan as though it doesn't. And not plan from fear, but plan for proactive action as though it doesn't. How am I going to make my shit better, even if it doesn't get better for anybody around me? Okay, how fast can I get out of any and all consumer debt? Next page. Did I skate through this, but am I still at risk? You know, I, I sit and I look in my son's situation. Company's just never really been growing that fast anyway. Relatively new company, been there since day one. Essential service, because they're in the safety business. A lot of their customers are essential businesses, so they're still working. Still delivering product. But this probably set their sales back. Do they have longevity? I don't know. I'm not saying yes or no. I'm just telling you that if they came to me and said, Jack, we're offering you the opportunity to invest $25,000 in our business today, I would, unless they had a really clear business proposal for me, which would be true anyway, but like based on what I know, my gut is there is no proposal that's honest that could make me say, yeah, here's a check. No, I don't think so. I'm not going to bet on an investment of 25 grand. So I'm advising my kid as things start to clear up, really start looking at what other opportunities you have. And if nothing else, use those opportunities to leverage more out of them because you are the one that got them through this shit. He has no idea how important he is to them. That's just one example, though. Are, are you still at risk even though you skated through this? You know, um, I have a good friend who listens to this show. Maybe you're listening to this right now, man. And he sold mostly to restaurants. Restaurants are slowly starting to come back around. He branched out and started selling to consumers during this. Um, are, are you going to get enough of those guys to come back strong enough to bring that business segment back? Or do you need to really double down on making sure you diversify your customer base? 
I don't know. But that's an example of somebody that got through this, and because of unemployment and a spouse and everything else, and bailouts and, and what have you, is basically in pretty much overall the same shape, maybe even a little bit better than he was going in, but it doesn't mean that everything's better going forward. It could be. It might not be. This is a question you have to answer for yourself. Did you skate through this, but are you still at risk? What can you do to mitigate that risk? What can you do to put more enterprise into your life? Next, what did this show me as to how I really want to live my life? There are a lot of people sent home from work and were really miserable about that at first, got through this economically, and now are saying to themselves, I really don't want to go back to my job. Some of them are using it to justify, we need to stay home and save lives. Some of them just are going to go back to work, but they really don't want to. They're really realizing, like, that is not how I want to live my life. What do you do? I don't know. But I do know what you do is you ask the question, what did this show me as to how I really want to live my life? And all these questions should lead you to more questions. So if that, if that gives you a bunch of answers, like, I, I effing hate my job. I don't like being told what to do every day. I don't like being separated from my children. I don't like to have to travel for work and never see my kids. Or when I come home, they're already growing. You know, like I came home, the kids like the kid grew an inch. Or anything like that. Even if it's not exactly that. Then you have to start asking the questions. How do I change that? What could I do so that I don't have to? See, as soon as you ask these questions the mind starts solving for X. All right? Um, how prepared am I for this to happen again, even if it's not, quote, this, unquote? So how prepared are you really for shit to go totally sideways in your life, whether it's for everybody or just for you, to this degree again? Could you handle, if you just got the left jab, could you handle the right cross? And most people, the answer is no. So you know what the question, the follow-up question to that is? How do I fix that? What can I do? If this does come back in a second wave, if they lock down even harder, what am I going to do? You might want an answer to that question today, not on July 1st when they say, oh, we're locking the whole state down again. I'm not saying they're going to. I'm saying you have to prepare as though by July 1st, everybody's like, happy days are here again. And July 1st, it's worse. You have to play, prepare for all those eventualities. Really. Um, next, what parts of my life are most at risk from this type of shutdown? What things do I most rely on, that I, I, I most value, that I most need, that I most depend upon, that are at the greatest risk from this type of shutdown? You should know that very You should know the answers to that very clearly now. And what you have to look for, though, because you know the ones that hit you. You have to look for the ones that almost hit you, that you barely got away with. You can't convince yourself that that meant you were great, you were super, you didn't have anything to worry about at all. You know in your gut the places you got the closest to being hit by this. One place I think a lot of people need to look that's outside of the material is the physical. How many of you are like, you know, they say comorbidities and all, but I weigh almost 300 pounds and... I don't want to admit it, but even though I'm, you know, quote unquote young, I'm afraid to get COVID because I have type 2 diabetes and I'm extremely overweight. Okay, maybe you want to fix that for that and a hundred other reasons. 
and I don't mean to lecture anybody. Everybody that's listened to this show over the years and has followed me over the years knows I've struggled with weight gain and loss. For the first time since this all started, I'm talking about the show now, I have sustained a new healthy life. I've, I've lost weight this week. And I started this journey August last year. And I am so grateful that I did this before. But, you know, if you, you know, the best time to get healthy, if you're not, is today. And the, the, actually the best time to do it is, you know, a year ago. The next best time is today. It's like planting a tree. So whatever it is, whatever parts of your life are most risk from this type of shutdown or event, ask yourself how you can fix that. Next, what have you learned about your state and other states? So, you know, I've talked about walking the freedom for years. This might be a really good time to kind of look around and go, what states did a better job with this according to you? Because maybe you think that your state didn't lock down hard enough. Maybe you think they didn't do enough. Or maybe you think they went too far. But I think this is a good time to start reevaluating strategic relocation. You know, maybe you don't need to be where you are. Maybe you also look at this from a standpoint of, hey, if pandemics are going to be a thing, and they might be or they might not, but if they might be a thing, then it might be a good idea to live somewhere where I'm not so at risk. Maybe a little bit less population density in a state that values my freedom a little bit more. Because I think there are some states that what they've come away from this is, boy, we really like the ability to tell everybody what to effing do. And we will lock down because it's a safe... See, the reason they do these things, it's safe for a politician. Let's say that New York had not done any of these lockdowns at all. And let's say that everything in New York looked exactly the same. I'm not saying that would have happened. Let's just say that it did. The death rate, the hospital rate, all of it was the same without lockdowns. You know what would have happened. The blowback would have been you should have locked down. This wouldn't have happened. Even in a state like Texas with about 30,000 uh, cases, if we hadn't done some mitigation, they'd say, you know, those thousand people that died are because you didn't do anything. But if you do something, no matter how bad it is, you can claim that you did something. And the worse it is, the more you can claim what you did was worth doing, even if it didn't do anything. So I think states are figuring that out. And I think some states are like, well, we don't want to destroy our state economy. So we need a plan that if this does come back, our plan is to keep the economy running more smartly than we did before. And I would much rather live in a state with that mentality than Michigan or New York or probably the most overreactive two states in the Union, California and Washington. I mean, I don't even know what you're doing if you live in either of those states after this. You can do what you want, and it's up to you, but, man, I... Next, if you have children, what have you learned about home-based education? What have you learned from this? You know, it amazes me to see my grandson, like I said, done with his work, 11 o'clock, free, to live his life like an actual kid. Outside, throwing a football. Outside, investigating things. Abel, when I'm done with work and I'm doing a project, come work with me for 15 minutes. If that's all he's interested in, that's all he's interested in. And it's not that hard. As much as I thought it was doable, like now I'm like, holy crap. Well, again, what are they doing? With like, I think they're wasting four to five hours a day of these kids' life, five days a week. That's 25 hours a week 
of a child's life, and a childhood is pretty short, stolen, they can never be recovered. I mean, the other side of it is my grandson likes school. He has friends. He's popular. He likes to hang out with other kids. He likes to be social. So it doesn't mean that it's right for everybody, but, boy, you need to ask, what have you learned about it? Is there a better way to do things? And, you know, when you look at a kid like that that likes to have friends, that likes to have activities, that likes to do things, if we were living without the COVID shutdown and you were going more of a home-based education, can you fix all that so they still have all of that activity, all of that interaction, all that socialization, but that freedom to go along with it? You might be able to. You want to ask that? You want to ask the question. See, one of the things I think that screws the whole damn thing up for Americans is we're so afraid of freedom we won't ask the questions. You don't have to be afraid of the question. You don't have to be afraid to examine the answer. You can still say no. I've told like I've told so many people this when they talk to me. Well, I have a job interview. I'm not sure if I really want the job. Did you go to the interview? No. Then you don't know if you want the job. That's what the interview's for. The interview's not to see if they want to hire you. That's only half. It's also to see, do you want to work for them? And let me tell you something. If you want the best offer you can get, you go with that attitude. What's the number one reason you came to this interview today? Well, sir, I wanted to see if you guys qualified for me to work for you. Especially if you don't need the job. Now, some people will be turned off by that, but most employers are like, whoa. Most powerful word in sales and marketing is what, guys? Come on. No. No, you can't have it. No, I won't take that that raid. No, I won't take your offer. Well, what would you take? I don't know. Try again. Be a little more diplomatic. But you really need to start thinking this way. Next, what skills do you have and what skills do you lack? Everything you needed and couldn't have during this that could be done by somebody you know, physically is a skill you lack. That doesn't mean you need them all. But it might be good to examine it. Again, these are all questions. You don't have to be afraid of the answers. You have to stop being afraid that the answer will be something you don't like or lead you to make a decision you're afraid to make. There is no such thing as having too much information. You can use information as an excuse, analysis paralysis, but there's no such thing as having too much information. In fact, you'll never have all the information you need. So anything that's easily accessible because it's already inside your head and all you have to do is be a big on grown-up and ask yourself a question and be honest with the answers because it's amazing what happens. You go through this analysis I'm giving you today, all of a sudden you're looking at a blueprint. Hey, this is what I should be doing with my life. Not because somebody else told me, but because I told me. And then you have two choices. This all looks impossible, or how do I? How can I? You take that blueprint and those questions and put them together, and you might not get exactly what you're looking for, but it's probably going to be a lot closer than you are right now. So what are your skills? What do you lack? What skills can you add? What opportunities were revealed by this crisis? Who were the people that did well through this crisis and why? And bigger than that, what are the opportunities that are likely to last... If the crisis continues or ends. See, I would put like food production in that. Like one of the things is a lot of small ag people have relied on restaurants. Because restaurants buy regularly and in large amounts. But the people that survived through this already were selling retail significantly or 
they shifted rapidly to a retail, at least a partial retail model, selling to individuals. You might have to work harder because you have to please more people. But you actually have more stability, not less. And I think that one sticks around because people now value that production more. I think that when you see these these shortages in, in, in meat production, it's not about farmers. Farmers aren't the problem. There's plenty of cows and pigs and chickens. The problem is four companies controlling all the processing in America with all their bullshit regulations. We might actually have to examine that. We might have to make more leeway now. It could be a good thing. Disruptions usually lead to changes and shifts. So there's so many opportunities. You know, when I had uh, Roger Rodriguez on a couple weeks ago, and they're doing pastured pork and pastured poultry, he said, my business has never been better than it is right now. I asked Darby Simpson, how has this affected your business? My business has never been better than it is right now. But that doesn't mean go into freaking chicken tractoring. It just means, like, that's an example. What did well and what will continue to do well if the problem continues or the problem goes away? That's redundancy. Or what is something that will do well if you take it this way if the problem continues or that way if the problem goes away? Think more broadly. Those are your questions. Ask those questions and then ask how do I in response to the things that they lead you to. Because what you have to do is write your own plan. And what you do matters like it always has, but especially now. I can't tell you what to do. Do you live on three acres like I do, and you're a podcaster that makes most of your money through product uh, through, through content creation? If so, this thing directly, economically, probably didn't affect you that much at all. Are you someone who worked in a very upscale restaurant as a bartender that made more money than me? Because I know, I mean, I know a bartender. Works for a restaurant up in uh, in the north side of the Dallas Metroplex. I think it's really Addison or uh, maybe it's Plano Richardson. It's somewhere in that area off of the tollway called Three Forks. The bartender in that place, not a top bar, like the bartender bar manager, makes about a quarter million dollars a year. Quarter million dollars a year. I don't think he's making that right now. So that person can actually be hit harder by something like this than a person that makes $50,000 a year. Because the, your, what, what lifestyle have you been purchasing with that, and how have you been purchasing it? So those two people, guys making fifty grand a year, got laid off, sitting at home on unemployment, making almost as much money as he was making, or more money than he was making, with the federal assistance for three months, is probably affected less than the guy that was making a quarter million dollars as a bartender if he wasn't smart about how he managed his money. And both of those people have to have different recovery plans. I don't know which one you are, any of a thousand other permeations. So you have to write your own plan. You have to determine your own destiny. These questions will lead you to a blueprint, and the blueprint will lead you to more questions of how do I and how can I? And what can I do so that? My number one lesson for you guys today, number one takeaway, I've said it so many times already, but I'm going to say it again here at the end. Do not be afraid to ask these questions. Do not be afraid of the answers that they lead you to. Do not be afraid to make your life better if times get tougher, even if they don't. They're already tough. They're already tough. There's probably never been a better time in history to be motivated enough to make your life a better life, no matter what happens. 
With that, we've wrapped up another episode of the Survival Podcast. If you want to help us out, remember one of the ways you can do that, do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Item of the day today, one you've heard about a lot from me over the years, and you will never stop hearing about it unless they or somebody else makes a better product. Dr. Earth Premium Gold All-Purpose Fertilizer. You're getting into that time of year. I'm starting to get the questions. Hey, my plants are a little yellow. My plants are this. My plants are... Let me tell you. You use this and the Garrett juice. Now, I suggest you use my entire fertility program. But you use this and you use Garrett juice, and most of those problems will blow away like a fart in the wind. I've done a lot with hydroponics this year. That doesn't mean I'm not planting in the ground. That doesn't mean I'm not building soil. This stuff is the bomb. Let me tell you a few things I love about Dr. Earth Premium Gold Solid Fertilizer. Number one, all organic. Number two, it's a 4-4-4 fertilizer. That means it's balanced. Equal amounts of, of NPK. So I don't have to worry like, okay, now I did a really great job supplementing nitrogen, but now <clears throat> since I'm doing squash, it's starting to set fruit, I need phosphorus. It's all there. Number two, incredible, incredible array of beneficial microorganisms. Next, it just works. I've said over and over, and I'll keep saying it, I have this great eight-part fertility system. And if you go to the write-up today, you can just click on fertility at the bottom and see everything in my fertility program and how I use it. And it is awesome. But if you said, Jack, you can only have one thing out of your fertility program. You have to do the rest with compost and water. What do you want, Dr. Earth Premium Gold? If you said you can have two, Dr. Earth, Garrett Juice. The reason I would put the Dr. Earth before the Garrett Juice, they're both very important. I can basically make Garrett Juice if I have compost. Compost and molasses and some other stuff. But I can, I can make a foliar feed if I have to. You ask me the next thing, it would be the GS Plant Foods Liquid Kelp. Those three, I, I, I almost don't have to have the other stuff. Now it's all like, it's kind of the end zone dance, like spiking the football to make it really awesome. But if you gave me one, Dr. Earth, and if you try it, you'll see why. I use this stuff when I plant transplants, pinch in the hole. I had a guy ask today, I planted my stuff, didn't I forgot. Had it, forgot to put it in the hole. What do I do now? Pull the mulch back, sprinkle it around the surface, about a half a shot glass full, put the mulch back over it, water it every evening for a week. And if it, if it looks like it can use a little more, give it another treatment and water it every evening for a Not even a lot of water, just a little bit. You know, if you're going to water anyway because you need to irrigate, that's fine. But if you don't need to irrigate, irrigate, just water a little bit right around the plant. That'll take some of that nutrient down to the root zone. And it'll start building up the biology in the soil. Man, you give me mulch and Dr. Earth, and I'm there, man. I can make anything work from there. Um, it is the best stuff, and if you use it, you won't be looking at sad plants. You'll be looking at happy, green, healthy plants. It is the best fertilizer that I have ever found as a general all-purpose organic fertilizer. And that's why it's the only one you hear me recommend. It's not that I don't think other ones work. I've even like I've been to Walmart when they're on clearance. There's a huge bag of generic organic fertilizer that has a decent NPK ratio, and it's like a 20-pound bag of that shit. I'll buy it. I'll use it. But I ain't going to recommend it. I recommend one, and there's a reason. Dr. Earth Premium Gold. With that, remember, again, you can support us no matter what you buy if you shop on TSPAS, and you can become a member of the site right now and get all the old episodes. You can get all kinds of discounts, all kinds of cool stuff, and support the show you love for half price. That's $25 bucks a year. 
Go to the Survival Podcast, click on Members, sign up there. And, hey, are you on the Daily Mail? If you're not on the Daily Mail, why not? There's so much shit you'd learn about that you don't learn about on the air, because I forget to say it. It goes in the mail. Videos I come out with, things I come out with, things that I find. You want to be on the Daily Mail. You get one email a day, five days a week. No bullshit. Couple, it's you know two to five bullet points and two to five links. And unsubscribe anytime you want. And no, I don't share your information. Do that, thesurvivalpodcast.com, and go to the subscribe tab on the show. Let's wrap things up now with our song of the day. This is called My Hero by Foo Fighters. This song was written by David Grohl and I can't think of the other guy in the Foo Fighters. They wrote it together. It's about the everyday common man being the real hero in the world. Boy, there's a lot to be said for that. Um, John McCain actually used this song during his campaign, and they were like, Hey, hey, you can't use that song. You're screwing it up. We don't, it's not for you. turned out that the Republican Party had purchased the rights to use it and a bunch of other music. But I wouldn't want to use anybody's music who thought they didn't, you know, they didn't want me using it the way I was. But they, they made a really good point about it. Even if it, it wouldn't even be a political point. It was missing the point. The entire point of this song is the, you standing up there wanting people to give you accolades and awards, you're not the hero in this song. In the video, if you watch the video, you notice that the guy that is the hero, you never see his face. There's symbology there. He's the hero that is the everyday man. The ha there's, a, there's an apartment on fire, and he runs in, he saves a baby, a dog, and I don't get the very thing at the end with a picture. I, maybe he figures out that his, that, that his wife who's outside is worth more than stuff. I don't know, because he's going through papers for some reason. And he staggers out after he sees the picture, and everybody's out there not doing shit. While he saves the baby and the dog and, and whatever else. But the band is playing the song sitting inside the burning apartment, saying, There goes my hero. That's the common man. And that was their point against McCain was like, You're using this to glorify yourself. And the guy we're singing about in the song would never do that. You don't even know his name. You'll never know his name. That's what makes him a real hero. He doesn't seek your approval, he just does what he does because it's the right thing. And I think there's so much in that, in the way we glorify entire professions. All teachers are heroes. No, they're not. I had some teachers that were lousy. I, had, I was talking to my wife last night when I was in Jacksonville before we moved to Pennsylvania. I had an English teacher who couldn't speak English to save her life. You're not a hero. You're incompetent. Doesn't mean there's not teachers who are heroic. But heroes are individuals, not groups of people doesn't mean what, what title you have or uniform you wear. It's the way you treat your fellow man that makes you a hero. And if you want to be a hero, you're probably not. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast.